Here's what I'm going to say. Um, last week, we not just started um, a, a redemption congregation, but we also opened up to the book of Mark, and we said we're going to go through the book of Mark for the next year. So we started a series, and it wasn't uh, how to do this or how to do that. We just said we're going to open up to the book of Mark. We said we're going to go through it verse by verse, really get, getting at what it's trying to tell us. And here's what we, we said. So let me just do a, a quick little recap for you because I, I hope this helps. Um, what we found out is immediately um, uh, we see uh, Mark declaring that John the Baptist was to come on the scene. He opens with prophecy. But before he does, what we had talked about was that in the Old Testament, there was this brokenness that, 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 that the Jews felt, that the people of God felt. And not just the people of God, but everyone. There was this, this brokenness. And, and what happened was we read from uh, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, that there was this declaration from the very beginning of time that there was this man who was to come and he was proclaiming over and over that his kingdom would reign, that all things would be made new. The fact that you're, you're, you, you feel the weight when you lose a family member, the fact of a relationship being broken, why it's hard to live in this world sometimes. There's this pulsing in the Old Testament over and over. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. And it's done by, by not just the, the first five books in the Old Testament, but it's done through all the prophets. And there's this pulsing, hey, someone's coming. And Mark declared last week that someone has come. It's Jesus Christ. And what we found out about Jesus Christ, and the question we wanted to ask as we go through this is, is because the book of Mark, no one ever knows besides the demons who Jesus is, which is a real bizarre concept. You read the book of Mark and no one knows till the very end, the like second to last chapter, who Jesus is in the book of Mark. No one ever says that he's God, he's the son of God, but we as readers do know. And so what we wanted to ask is, what if we were that people, the people reading the letter, we don't know who Jesus is, so what does Mark tell us? Who does Mark tell us? Jesus is. And we found out he comes as a conqueror, that he's the son of God. We found out that he's not just um, some Messiah, like, like I use Katniss Everdeen, someone who's just to come conquer a, a person, but ultimately we found out that he is God in, in the Trinity. So maybe some of you aren't familiar with the Trinity, but he's part of this something bigger, this God who is um, God in three persons, each person being fully God. And, and yet there's this one God, and this is Jesus. Jesus is the image bearer of, of the invisible God. And so this is really great. This is awesome. And we get to see this. And now, um, after we read him being baptized, uh, we're going to get this word immediately. And this is Mark's uh, favorite word in the, the book of Mark. He uses immediately, constantly. As soon as Jesus comes out of the water, immediately um, what we see is the spirit, the same spirit that descended over Jesus in his baptism, that same spirit now is going to drive him out into the wilderness. So here's, here's what I want to do. Before we read our text, um, we need to constantly keep pointing back to that throbbing that I talked about. Now, I only got to tell part of the story last week, so let me tell a little bit more because it's important for our, our verses today. So, so here's what, what I mean. Um, I, I said that as Genesis 1 and 2, um, things were created and all things were good, and then in Genesis 3, things are broken. And I told you it's because man chose not God. But, but here's what I, I, I want to um, ask. Who was that man? And I'm not trying to patronize anyone because I, I think everyone would know his name is Adam, whether you're born or raised in church or not. Um, but so we're all on the same page. I want to tell you his story because as we continue to go into the one who's been long awaited, this guy that we talk about that we're singing to, Jesus Christ, there's a connection between these two men. So here's what I mean. 
Um, in our story, we said that God made all things good, right? You read Genesis 1, it's good. He makes the sun, it's good. He makes plants, it's good. Over and over, all day, all five days. And then he gets to day six and he makes man. Well, when you get to Genesis 2, there's a, a detail-oriented account of God making man, the Father God. And, and here's what's awesome. Um, he makes man, he calls him Adam, which is just the, the word for man. He calls him Adam. He breathes into this man, and here's what's awesome. And then the Bible says in, in verse 25 that he plants a garden. And here's what it says about that garden. When God plants this garden, he puts only the trees that are good for sight and food in this garden, right? So we're not messing around with Arizona death. You know what? Okay, so um, here's this good, well, maybe, if you like, like saguaro cactus. Um, but here's this, this, this uh, garden, and it's set there. And then it says, and God not just breathes into man. He gives him this spirit. He gives him life. He then takes this man, and he puts him in this awesome place. Like, it's, it's perfect, you guys. Like, uh, theologian Matt Groening would say that um, Homer can actually peel the bacon right off the, the, the pig's belly, right? So there's this idea that everything is good and everything is easy and everything is awesome. And so here is Adam, and he has everything he's needing. He's going around, he's naming the animals, and eventually God gives him a wife, and things are very good, and things are going great. And then we got to the detail part of how things break down. And this is where it's important for our verses today. Because what happens is um, Satan comes onto the scene and he, he begins to, to talk with Eve first and he begins to tempt Adam and Eve, right? You, you, you're obviously familiar with that type of language. As he begins to tempt Adam and Eve, what we see is that um, they, they at first knew it was wrong, but then they begin to um, not rely on what God has said. And then the Bible says, and they saw the tree that it was good for food. So, so before it wasn't an option, but now suddenly it's an option. I, ironically enough, just a side note, that's all temptation, right? Like if we, so so he, here Adam and Eve, we, they, they see this temptation and they give in. And here's what's important. They fail. And more specifically, Adam fails. And we're told in Romans chapter 5, hindsight, we could see way down the corridor of time that sin entered the world through one man, death through, through, death through sin, in this all men die because all have sinned. So Adam sins and all hell literally breaks loose. And so now that brokenness that we were talking about, the fact that the Jews want a restoring, they're waiting for this long-awaited Messiah, he needs to come because Adam has failed them. Adam has let them down. And Romans 5 says that Adam was a representative. He represented man. And because he has failed man, he he did not trust in God. Now we need a new representative. And and that's a big deal because now we get to our story. Um, We pick it back up uh, in Mark chapter 1. And this is what it says right after Jesus is baptized. Um, uh, the spirit was descending over him and it says this, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So what we have is Jesus comes out. He hears the father saying, you're, you're my son in whom you I'm well pleased. It's in Jesus whom he's well pleased. Um, and then immediately he, he's out of the water and he's taken right into the wilderness. The spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted. Okay. So the spirit drives him into the wilderness. And this is what it says. Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Here's what's really crazy and what's exciting about um, reading through Mark. Um, If you read the other gospels in Matthew and Luke specifically, Matthew and Luke 4, there's a lot more detail. Okay, um, we, we hear how Satan kind of like tempts him, what he says, how he gets him to disbelieve what, who he's there and why he's there and, and all this. We get all these, but not Mark. Mark's like, yeah, so he was baptized. I don't know. The spirit took him into the desert somewhere in the wilderness and 
I don't know, something else, something happened out there, right? And all it says is he's being tempted. He was tempted by the devil, right? So there, there's this weird thing that, that we don't know. And so instead of looking at the details, we're going to do what Mark does and look at this big overview. And here's what's important. And here's why this is great. And this is why I told you the story of Adam. Here's what we know. Though Jesus is tempted, though Jesus is around wild animals, though Jesus is in the wilderness, though we can look at the story in Adam and say, hey, he named those wild animals without them trying to hurt him. He was in a plush garden. In this moment, Jesus and Adam are both being tempted. And though Adam failed, what we know is Jesus succeeds. And this is important because Jesus did not just come on the scene to like fix the mess of the previous representative. Jesus came on the scene to be a new representative. Now, this is a big deal because we read last week that it's in God whom we are, uh, uh, it's, it's in Jesus whom God is well pleased. So now we look and go, hey, here's the deal. Like at the end of the day, like you're going to mess up. You know that, right? Like I say this all the time, but even some of you coming in here are yelling at your kids to shut up. Some of you guys are like, get out the door. You're being a, a terrible husband to your wife. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. And when temptation comes, you're going to mess up. But it's not in you. It's not in you where that power lies because that is an old representative. And if you are a Christian in here, you go, listen, at the end of the day, it's not in the music I listen to. It's not in the movies I watch. It's not how I do this, or it's not how I do that. It's not me getting it right. It's not me picking myself up by my bootstraps. It's not any of these things at the end of the day. It's me trusting in the one who is the representative. It's me being in that one who conquered the temptation. Now, what that does is it causes insane, insane amounts of effort. Now, because I know Jesus has won, Jesus has conquered, that, that, that makes me long to be near him and makes me want to fight the very temptations I have, okay? Now, at the end of this verse, um, it says this, uh, and the angels were ministering to him. I was going to tell you what that meant, but I have no idea, right? Okay, so I don't know if that's like Michael, give him a Chipotle. I have no idea what that means. But um, so the, here, here, here's this. Now, just so we can kind of tie this up, I want you to understand, Adam and Jesus are not just connected because I'm trying to spiritualize the text. Um, we have hindsight to see what Jesus did in saving his people. Um, in Romans 5, I said that, verse 12, but I want to read very quickly, 18 through 21. I don't think we have it on the screen. So if you can listen, this is out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. So um, just breathe, some of you who um, love the ESV. Okay, this is what it says. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. So you can see how he's juxtaposing these two. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Listen to verse 21. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them into death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right relationship with God, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now we know this story, and we're going to constantly point back, guys. We we, we need to get our our worldview straightened out here and to understand here's how it started and here's why Jesus coming on the scene is so important. And it started with this man, this representative. He failed just like you, just like me. But thank God that his son came and is now our representative, that Jesus now has conquered not just sin and death at the end, but he conquers temptation in the beginning of his life, which is a big deal. Now, if all that's true, which... We believe it is. Um, 
we haven't heard Jesus talk at all yet. This is weird, isn't it? Like in the other accounts, Jesus talks before and after he's baptized. And when he's being tempted, we hear Jesus talk. But Mark doesn't have Jesus talk at all during these times. Matter of fact, we get to verses 14 and 15, the very first time Jesus talks. And so if, if this is a big deal, because if Jesus is our new representative, we have to begin to ask the question, well, what is he all about? Because whatever he's all about, I want to be all about. And he hasn't talked yet. So after Jesus is tempted, this is what it says in verse 14, just to give us a little uh, context. Now, after John was arrested, so remember John, the dude who baptized him, Jesus is coming back into Galilee because it says Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So the man who baptized him, Jesus deuces out for 40 days. When he comes back to Galilee, he rolls back in and JB has gone, right? Like where's John, right? And so he's in jail. Okay. And we'll find out in chapter six, what happens to John, but all we know is the dude's out. And so Jesus is there. And so he begins to proclaim the gospel of God, which ironically enough in verse one, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's this um, tying together that Jesus is God, right? So um, here's what it says. Uh, It's broken down and the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. There's these three things that I want to stop and I want to spend the majority of our time in. Now, hear me when I say this. Um, uh, We're going to have to put our thinking caps on. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to try to, to treat us all like, like, we're, we're, all, we're all grown-ups in this room, and, and I want us to really begin to process and think through what's going to happen. Now, for us to do that, we're going to be slow and methodical, but I promise if you can stick it out and this can click, we will get why this is a big deal. It's a big deal. This is what it says. So we're going to break down this first one. The time is fulfilled. This is what it says in the first four, four words. Jesus hasn't said anything yet. In the very first four words, he says, is the time is fulfilled. Okay? So um, here's how I thought I can explain this. Um, If you're in this room and you don't say Michael Jordan is the best basketball player ever, you're an idiot, okay? Um, Now, (laughs) well, well, lead pastor calling people idiots. Here we go. Um, No, so uh, here's here's the deal. Um, Jordan's the best ever. Okay, I just must say it if you didn't believe that yet. Um, and, and the reason this, this is kind of weird, because now we have anyone under the age of 15 who's like, no, man, LeBron. I'm like, beat it, right? Um, okay, because there's no question that Jordan's the best ever. But we could say, um, this is LeBron's time, though, right? I mean, or you could say Kevin Durant's time if you're familiar with, with basketball at all. But right now, this is LeBron's the best in the NBA. I mean, even before Jordan, you can say Bird or Magic or Kareem. That was their time, and then it was Jordan. And, and then maybe you can argue for Kobe. Kobe had his time with Nash and Shaq and Wade. Okay, but, but right now, you would say it's King James's time. It's LeBron's time. Now, when we say it's, it's LeBron's time, we don't literally mean chronologically, do we? Like, when we begin to use English language, we don't go, well, from 2003 to th- 2018, that was LeBron's literal time. He was allowed to be the best from that point to this point. No, that would, that's silly. What we mean, we're trying to communicate when we say that in English, right? We're trying to say, like, it's his season or it's his era. I mean, what, what, what are we, we're trying to communicate something more than just it's his time, but we don't have something in English to really communicate that. Well, luckily in Greek we do. So the original manuscripts for the book of Mark are written in Greek. And there's actually two Greek words to, sh- to show us time. The first one, you know, it's not important to know it, but it's chronos. It's, it's where we get our word chronological from. It's the idea that, Hey, what chronos is it? What time is it? It's three o'clock. There is this, then this, 1978, 79, 80. That's chronos. But then there's this other word, kairos, which means like season, like, like what we're trying to get at with LeBron, that it's his, it's his time. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he uses that second word. 
He's not literally saying, hey, it's 32 AD. Now is the time. The time is fulfilled. It's four o'clock. Let's do this. He's saying there was a season, a time when things are broken. But I'm telling you, the time is fulfilled. The one you've been waiting for is here. It's me. And then he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this is a big deal because if the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, we got to put our, our, our mind to think, one, some of us even wonder what is the kingdom of God, which we'll get out in a second. But more importantly, what the people are hearing is probably different than what we're hearing. Right? So when my wife says, hey, six days till Christmas, and my, my kids jump up because they're super jacked about getting their presents, six days until I get presents, I hear six days till, pres- till, till Christmas and go, crap. I got to buy presents, right? So though my wife is saying the same thing, we're hearing, my my sons and I are hearing two completely different things, excitement and I've waited till the last minute. Oh, dang, okay? So we're hearing the same thing. Now, now this is a big deal because when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, what the Jews are hearing, what the people at that time are hearing is there has been, based on Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, over and over, these these prophecies that when this one who's pulsating, this Messiah comes, when this Jesus comes, this time being fulfilled, he is going to set up a geographical territory. There's going to be, so the Jews are hearing conquest, geographical conquest. There's going to be no outside rulers, Babylon and Rome are going to be pushed to the outskirts or destroyed. And the Messiah is going to declare his reign physically here on the earth, right? Now, though that's true, there's a part of that that's true. Jesus, um, though he's saying this is meaning one thing and, and the Jews are hearing another. Because the truth is, a lot of us don't really know what the kingdom of God is. And luckily, Mark is going to talk about it a lot. Um, and here's, what's great. Uh, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than anything else. So more than like walking an aisle and saying a prayer and filling out a card more than not listening to Tupac, more than not smoking cigarettes, more than anything else, going to church, getting it right more than anything else. What Jesus talks about over and over and over again, more than anything else, the kingdom of God. And the first thing he does when he comes on the scene is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God literally is here. It's at hand. It's time. Now, um, here's, here's what I want to say, because I can't spend a terrible amount of, of time talking about the kingdom of God and what it is. But here's what I want us to get our mind around, okay? Um, when Josh comes up here, or April last week comes up here, and they begin to tell us, or April, uh, summer last week, when they begin to come up here and tell us what they do, um, we have to ask, why are they doing this? Like, like, why is Josh, he could rip people off, couldn't he? So in being a personal banker, he's to reflect God. He's to reflect God in those moments. And so here's what I'm going to say. This is one line. It may be helpful, maybe not. The kingdom of God is everything in the way it's supposed to be in whom it's supposed to be under. So, so I'm not just trying, all right, memorize that and go off. What I'm saying is the way things were created, supposed to be the kingdom of God is as God begins, as Jesus begins to continue to in Colossians one and Ephesians one, continue to reconcile all things to himself. The kingdom of God is growing. And matter of fact, what we see in Matthew 13 is kingdom of darkness. The wheats and the tares are growing together. And so the kingdom of God is growing you in your job. Say, this is what it's like to be a mechanic. This is what it's like to be a doctor. The kingdom of God is growing. So though it's not a spatial place, There's more to it than just, hey, let's set out into the wilderness and just start a new commune, okay? So here's, then let's keep going. Here's the payoff. I really pray. Otherwise, we've just wasted 40 minutes. Um, uh, The kingdom of God is at hand. And then then he says this, repent and believe in the gospel, okay? Now, um, 
this is going to get real tricky, and I, I hope this works. So first let me say this. This last Thursday, um, uh, our community got to welcome a refugee family. It was a single mom with three um, kids, and we got to meet them at the airport, pick them up, bring them to the apartment. And here's what's crazy. This mom, she's a refuge in a refugee camp. Um, she's from Somalia, and I'm, obviously I'm not going to share all the deep, but horrible, horrible things have happened to her and her kids. Awful things. Like can't sleep at night literally, even if you were alone because of the memories and can't sleep out in fear of those things happening again, okay? Now, when she gets off the plane and we welcome her and we take her to her apartments, there's this sense um, that goes all those fears and all those things, like they're gone. And, and America, though we want to believe this, is not the kingdom of God, but what she's experienced and the freedom and the loss of those fears is God saying, as Christians, this is what we're called to do, to provide a space for people to go. You don't have to worry about losing your son or daughter. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about that. But God, in his glory and his beauty, is protecting you. And even if these evil things happen, to know that there is a joy beyond anything else, that God is sovereign in those things. Now, I don't want to, um, when I read these four verses, uh, th- this one verse, I don't want to just say some grammatical stuff but I'm forced to because this is the payoff. Um, in verse 15, okay, here we go. You ready? You ready? In, in verse 15, there are four verbs. Let's go back to like third grade real quick. If we remember what a verb is, a verb is anything that is in action. So a verb is run, right? That's run. So I ran, okay? I'm running. Well, verbs in English have tenses, okay? Track with me. Here we go. Next level. Okay. Um, so we could say um, for the word run, let's go. We have the past tense. I ran, right? There, there's the past tense. In the present tense, I'm running. There's the present tense. And in the future, I will run. Okay. So there's this I ran, running, run. We have three tenses in English the past, the present, and the future. But how do we communicate um, something that happens? For example, um, like when kids are born. Uh, so, so our kids are born, and they used to smack the butt when the baby's first born, but now I think they, like, pinch the foot. So when, when Corbin was born, and he comes out, and the nurse pinches the foot if the baby's not breathing, it's to get that baby to cry. The reason you want that baby to cry is because the lungs need to be open, oxygen needs to come in, and, it begins, and that's the best way. You don't, like, tell them a joke so they start laughing. You need them to cry. Big, right, big, uh, big breasts, and this baby's crying and opening, okay? Well, you did this one thing. How do we communicate this in English? You did that one action in the past, but that one action has had continued results. Like that one action of spanking that child or, 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 or uh, pinching its foot, you made that baby cry, but there's now present implications and future implications. Well, well luckily, though in English there's three tenses, in Greek there's seven, right? Here we go, third level, let's do this, okay? I'm not going to tell you all the tenses, but here's what I am going to say. The first two words, uh, the first two verbs, the time is fulfilled, that's a verb, Okay? Oh, man, I hope this doesn't mess us up. Um, the, 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 the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Those are verbs. It's coming. And here's what's crazy about that. Those are in that same tense. It's called the perfect tense. It doesn't matter, but it's called the perfect tense. As if when, when I pinch that baby's foot, the baby continues to cry. So what Jesus is saying is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's setting this, declaring this. And because the kingdom of God is here, now there are implications to that. Now we breathe over and over and over again. So now the kingdom of God has come, but we look around and go, the kingdom of God isn't here. How could you say the kingdom of God is here? And I would say, well, at Chase Bank, there's a man there who's reflecting as a sign, an image bearer of Jesus Christ, reflecting to the one who is restoring his kingdom. 
So I would say in every sense, there is visions. There is, I'm um, like broken shades of glass. We can see through. There are signs of that kingdom. And because Jesus came over and over, there are implications to that. Now, what if um, you have a child when you pinch that baby's foot and you pinch this baby's foot and, um, and it starts to cry, but then it stops crying and stops breathing. So, so then you got to pinch that baby's foot again. And then that, that three-day-old goes into three months, and three months turns into three years. And we actually have a family friend whose daughter was born. And every single night, um, she's out of this now, but she's like till, up to like six or seven. Every single night, the parents had to take turns um, because the daughter would stop breathing. And so they would have to stay up, alternate nights of staying up all night long. So when the daughter stopped breathing, they would have to, honey, wake up, wake up, wake up. Breath over and over. How do we communicate that? That's something that needs to take place again and again. Not just something that just happened, like the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then there's implications, but something that happened, and now there is something that needs to continue to happen. How do we communicate that? And again, luckily, in Greek, there is a tense for that, and it's found in repents and believe. So here's how we understand repent and believe. We've always traditionally understand this as you're, you're walking in one direction, you're following the principality of, of this world, you're, you're being blinded by the God of this world and your sin, and in this moment, Jesus wakens you up, the Holy Spirit shows you the disdain of your life, and you repent from those things, right? And so you turn from those things. And then there's an active sense that you begin to believe or trust on Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, unfortunately, in our culture, we have boiled this down to someone saying a prayer or handing out a track, right? So, so <laughs> the funniest is like the ones that look like dollar bills or like $100 bills. You find they just leave them on the ground and you pick up a $100 bill. And it's like, oh, you wanted $100. You're going to hell, right? And you're like, okay, no, I just wanted $100. Um, so there's these tracks that we've said, you need to repent and you need to believe. And we read that and go, hey, you guys, repent and believe. If you don't know Jesus Christ, repent and believe. But that's not what it's saying, is it? See, we're actually the daughter who needs to be reminded to breathe every single night. We forgot that we've been pinched. And that's the tense, repent and believe. Over and over, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And this is a big deal because if you're not a Christian in here, I would say to you, you need to repent. You need to recognize you're following the course of this world. Repent from those things and believe on Jesus Christ. But if you've been saved for 15, 20, 30, 50 years, your call is still the same. To repent from these things, turn from them, and trust in Jesus Christ. It's happening over. So I hope this helps. There's an, an image. If you can throw it up, Josh. Um, I hope this image helps because I, I was shown this image a, a while ago. So here's how we as Christians view our relationship with God. Ultimately, I, I hope, right? So um, here is God. God is perfect and he's going in this direction. We as man, we're, we're sinful, okay? So there's this divide. So when you want to come to Jesus Christ, there's this separation between who you are and who God is, okay? So let me go through a track for you. So normally this is what tracks look like. And then, so here's the cross. Throw up the next image. So here's the cross. The, the cross and maybe you've seen a cheesy, like there's a chasm and it's a bridge, right? Whatever you want to say, there's this cross that, that, that separates that divide, that God being perfect and I am sinful, okay? But here's what's wild. The more time you spend with God, the more you realize that God is more perfect and I am more sinful. I mean, if anybody's been a Christian in here longer than three days, you recognize the way you saw your sinfulness, whoa, there's a lot more wickedness to me than I originally thought. And so you begin to see that God is more perfect. God is way more awesome than I had originally thought. As I continue to read the Bible and continue to pray. But not only that, I am way more sinful 
than I had originally thought. Unfortunately, this is what we as Christians do. We begin to see the cross as the same size. So, so maybe this is helpful, maybe it isn't, but we see that God is more perfect and I am more sinful, but the cross I still look to is the same, but the cross is the same size. So though you're more sinful, you don't need Jesus anymore. So now, this is what Galatians 3, by witchcraft, it's demonic that you would start your relationship with God in trusting on Jesus, but then try to fill it with good works. That now that Jesus has saved you, now i got to work really hard. No, that's not what we're told here. That you are to continue over and over to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Because as G.K. Chesterton would say, it's your damnable good work sometimes that keeps you from God. So that, that we would know that at the end of the day, it's not us. It's, it's not us. We would hold fast to the gospel and we would believe the gospel. My man, Charles Spurgeon, my goal is literally to use a quote from him every single week. Um, um, Charles Spurgeon, you have to put it up because I accidentally didn't put it in my notes. This is what Charles Spurgeon would say. Um, it is very necessary to go over the elements often, the foundation truths of the gospel. Schools may rise to the classics, but they can never dispense with the spelling book. All over the country, there must be the repetition of the alphabet and the words of one syllable, and there, uh, or there will be no scholarship. Leave that up. So here's what Spurgeon is saying. Um, you may now be able to recite your ABCs, but you cannot do your job without those ABCs. Do you understand? Like without you knowing those letters... Without, without, so it's necessary to go over the elements often, to be reminded that you can write books and you can do great things, but you can only do those things from what you originally know. And here's what Jesus is trying to get at. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That there's over and over, there's this flowing now getting, but our response to that, and this is the tie-in for all of us, is to, exact, to, to be exactly like Adam wasn't. Our response is to be like Adam in the garden, And now that Jesus came and he came naked, though Adam brought that nakedness, though he was amidst wild beasts, though Adam named those wild beasts, though like he was called to a tree, as we find out on the cross, Adam was called to avoid that tree. Now Jesus has won and he not just came through the negative of what Adam presented, but now Jesus has put us in a place to all we have to do as we sit in this garden to go, okay, all I got to do is trust you. And it's not a tag to the cross in your writ, but it's a holding tightly to it and not letting it go and being reminded, repenting, believing, God, I need you, I need you. And lest I let the enemy trick me and go astray, I need to be reminded of who you are. I need to remember of what you've done. So um, I'll close us with this story and then I'm going to pray for us. I I listened to a podcast. um, It's called Radio Lab and it's a really great podcast. That's not Christian at all. And um, they tell these really bizarre stories. And there's a story um, of these whooping cranes. And some of you guys have probably heard this, um, what has happened with these whooping cranes before. But basically these certain whooping cranes were um, becoming extinct. So much so there's only like, I think eight of them left in the world. And so there was this research um, party who ended up getting together, finding out what was going on with these whooping cranes. And they developed something, um, uh, this, this research project, over $100,000, this research lab where they would bring these whooping cranes in and then they would have them mate, they would incubate the eggs, and then they would train these eggs to follow as these babies were born. They would literally dress up like birds and, and um, they would have these to follow these birds and then eventually that bird would follow a plane and they taught these birds to migrate. And, and so that, that, the population of um, whooping cranes went from eight to 500 in the span of like three or four years. It's really cool, right? Well, what happened was um, eventually as they're tagging these whooping cranes to follow the GPS, 
us, they, they saw they began to stop in this small little place in Florida. Okay, so like, why are all these cranes stopping in Florida? And so um, they go and they find this lady. She has a pretty big house in this kind of marsh backyard, really beautiful area. And she has hundreds of bird feeders out and the cranes stopped and they're like, why would we go anywhere? Right? Like, so they end up hanging out there and they just never leave. Okay. So they knock on the door, they go to this lady and they say, Hey, um, man, we've spent over a hundred grand over the last 10 years I mean, hundreds of us have poured in our life and time to get these cranes to migrate so that this population will grow. And if they stay here, they will die. Um, can, can, just, can you please move your bird feeders for a while so these cranes can get out of here so we can get them moving? And she looks at them and says, no, right? And, and you're hearing this story and you're going, are you serious? Like hundreds of thousands of dollars over 10 years in research and time and effort. And you just said, no. No, I won't move my bird feeders. And what happens is, is you begin to see in the conversation, um, you begin to find out more about this lady, and you're so infuriated with her. Like, she's so selfish that all she would care about is for her to, like, hoard these birds when she can give them and allow them to be anyone for them to grow. But then you begin to find out that um, her husband has Alzheimer's, and um, he's completely gone. Like, if any of you guys have experienced the weight of of, uh, this disease, I mean, he's gone. He can't remember anything. Um, But... Whenever he sits on the back porch and he looks out at his backyard, though he's completely gone, he can't remember who his kids are, who his wife are. Every time these cranes land, suddenly everything comes back. He remembers everything. He remembers he has Alzheimer's. He remembers his wife. He remembers his kids. Suddenly he's reminded this, whoa, right? And now the story changes. It goes on. You you realize like, wow, that was way more than just her being selfish, but, but now you have to ask the question like, well, what is it, a bird's life to this, but he remembers. But my point is this, that, that, that we forget, right? So you were blinded by the enemy. This is First Peter, that, 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 that you didn't know you were a sinner and suddenly you're awakened if you're a Christian in here and you would say, I follow Jesus Christ. I love Jesus Christ. I trust in, in Jesus Christ and I believe on Jesus Christ. But the truth is we have Alzheimer's and, and we forget and, and, and the cross, as cheesy as this is, is like those cranes, man. And we see the cross and we go, oh my goodness, I need to repent and believe, repent and believe. And these are our orders from the one who is our representative. This is what Jesus has called us to do, Christian or not, that we would look to him, we would trust him for all joy, all peace, avoiding the stupid trinkets of this world, trying to fill our lives with false idols. Who will fail us? Repent and believe and trust on Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We're grateful for for what you've done. We're grateful for you being our representative, that though Adam represented us, he failed, and you are a greater representative. You are Jesus, the Messiah who has come, the one we've waited for, and the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now at hand, and we continue to long to do things to reflect that kingdom as ministers of reconciliation, as you tell us in 2 Corinthians 5. But in the midst of that, we also need to know that it is your kingdom, and this kingdom is only good because it reflects the king. And because of that, we look to you, not just once, but over and over and over. We need to be reminded to breathe and trust in you, repent and believe on you, not letting go of the cross. I love you. We love you. We thank you. 
We desperately, desperately need you, Jesus. May we not forget that truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.